So we continue in worship this morning as we turn to Genesis. We started into our series uh, last week, this new series that we started uh, called Alpha and Omega, God from Beginning to End. We started into that series that it's going to have a studying from the, the, the beginning to the end of the Bible. We're going to do a survey of the whole of the scriptures. Uh, it, we started last week by looking at the end and, and seeing God's claim, his own claim. This is God speaking for himself. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, uh, the, the God who is, who was, and is to come. And, and so we see God showing himself to be this eternal God at the end of time, when, when, when all things are about to be made new, when he professes out loud, I am making all things new. He's going to end death and, and, and end suffering and wipe away tears and pain and all of these things are going to come to an end, and the, and the world in which we live, the physical world in which we walk, will no longer be, be uh, carrying the burden of a curse against sin. When we, we looked at that time when that's going to occur, but he made a statement in the midst of it that he is not only the God then, he has always been God. And that's our profession. That's, that's the Christian perspective. That's the, the view that the Bible presents. That's the the, the view that we are, are challenged to take and encouraged to take, uh, but the reality is we do struggle. As I've talked with a number of you through the week, we do struggle recognizing that God is God and always will be. This, I think, really is the, 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 the press or the, the rub of the Christian life is to live in this world right now where we're at recognizing God is always God. There's not ever a moment in which we can live in which he in some way has ceased to be the God who is, who was, and who is to come. That is who he is. Now, if that's true, then we shouldn't just be able to look to the end of the Bible and hear him profess it. We should be able to see this professed all the way through scripture. And so that's really the heart of this series is to see him at work at all times and in all places uh, throughout history, to see him being God, that that would encourage us and enable us to better, to, to better live in this world that's his and to better live as, as a people who are his. And, and, and so that's, that this week, we're now turning back to the beginning, and we're going to look all the way back to the beginning of time, to the beginning when God creates. And we're actually going to spend the next several weeks, I think it's about six, this one and about six more looking at God creating. It's the first unit that we're going to really focus on in this series that, that, that will span maybe a, maybe a year or a little more. Uh, I don't exactly know how long it'll take us to do this, but, but I, I think it's going to be about that time. The, the, the idea here, though, is that we, 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 we need to know, it's right to know, it's good for us to recognize God being God and us trusting him at every moment, in every place, every circumstance we find ourselves so that we can live in this world that belongs to him. The alternative, as we looked at last week, the alternative is to, to, to fall prey and to, and to be, be uh, heavily influenced or under the influence of, of, of the world that we live in, right? That the, the world around us has strong influence. There's all kinds of perspect, perspectives that they are promoting every day, all the time. We, we see it in the movies that we watch. We see it in the, in the media stories that are promoted. We see it in the, the, the stories that we read. The, the, the world has always been pushing its perspective. It's always been preaching a message. It's always been seeking, seeking to uh, apply influence to us. The, the enemy, the devil, 
out there, the Bible tells us, roaming around like a lion, seeking to devour. He is the father of all lies. He is always seeking to trip us up and to lead us to a place where we believe things that aren't true. The, the most dangerous of those are, are, are half-truths woven to, to, together with, with, with complete lies, and, which makes them completely untrue. But then we also have our flesh that, that leads us to things that to, to trust in things, to hope in things, to, to lose hope in God and to trust in something other than God. And, 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 and that's the alternative. I, I shared this, this quote with you last week. I thought it was fitting because this week the, the application is much like last week's. It's look at God. He is God. We can trust this God. The alternative is to live in God's world under his authority but not know him as God and, and, and fall prey to the influence of the world, the flesh, and the devil. J.I. Packer wrote in, in the book, Knowing God, he, he writes this, Knowing about God is crucially important for the living of our lives. As it would be cruel to an Amazonian tribesman to fly him to London, put him down without explanation in Trafalgar Square, and leave him, as one who knew nothing of English or England, to fend for himself. So we are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place and life in it a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know about God. Disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. We don't have to live that way. In fact, as God's people living in God's world, he didn't, he, he didn't intend for us to live that way. He intends for us to know him, to walk with him, to live under his authority, understanding the world that he's created and the work that he's doing so that we can trust and walk with him. The alternative is, is to walk apart from him. It's so necessary because at the heart of every struggle is, there, is a misunderstanding about who God is or what God's doing. At the heart of every struggle, at the heart of every negative emotion, of every struggle against sin, of every falling into temptation, is a lack of our knowing, trusting, and being satisfied with the God who is. It's the result of us looking somewhere else, and God says you don't have to do that. The solution is to know Him. If we want to know the joy of salvation that David talks about in Psalm 51, it's to know him. If we want to know the peace that passes understanding, the solution is to know him. If we want to know the fullness of the grace that he has lavished upon us that Paul wrote about in Ephesians, it is to know the God who is. And so that's what we're going to do. That's what we're always going to be about is knowing this God. This morning, we're going to turn back to the very beginning to see that it is true. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He's not one or the other. He is both the God from beginning to end. He was there in the end, and just as sovereign as he was then, he is sovereign in the beginning. Let's look at it. Genesis chapter 1. We'll read two verses this morning, then we'll pray, and then we'll jump in and see what the Lord has for us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Let's pray. Father, there's so much veiled in mystery, so much veiled in, in, in an inability to understand that even as, we, 
even as we use all the technology that we've gathered and all the ability that we have and exercise ourselves as image bearers, there's so many things that we just don't know. So many things that we feel uncertain in. So many places that we feel as if we should know more. I pray, Father, that by your word today, we will be encouraged just to simply trust you. To see you as the God who is, who was, and who is to come. That we may live every day pressing, uh, pressing into that truth and growing in that faith. That we might live in confidence in this world that belongs to you as a people who belong to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, having already looked at the end of the story, we started in Revelation, right? We saw God at the, at the end proclaiming, professing to be the God, uh, the, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the, the end, the first and the last, the God who is, was, and is to come. We saw him. We studied that last week. Well, well now we have a view of, of this book-ended view, this book-ended reality that the, 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 the Bible, God's word, begins and ends with creation. In the end, he is making all things new. He is recreating or, or renewing or, or making a new world for us to live in. There's so much conjecture about that. We'll deal with that in, in, in many weeks to come when we come to the consummation of all things, that, that God is con- going to consummate his kingdom and, and bring the world to be what he intends it to be. But we see that, that where he's creating new there, he's creating initially here, that God is a God who creates that God is a God who, who, who brings things into existence that didn't exist before. Our God is the sole source of all that exists in heaven and on earth. He created everything by his powerful word and according to his sovereign plan. Our God is the sole source of all that exists in heaven and on earth. He created everything by his powerful word and according to his sovereign plan. And I, I actually I, I, I thought about this a lot this week. As I prepared for this, I found, find it so ironic that as I've studied both in Revelation and in Genesis, that there is so much conjecture, so much mystery, so much drawing of conclusions, so much uh, applying of out, external biblical perspective to both the end and the beginning, that because we, we are left in a place where God tells us some things but leaves us with many, many questions. Not to say that there's not questions left in the middle, not in, in the story that, that, that exists in the middle, but, but the reality is, is that there is so much mystery veiling the beginning and the end that even in the Christian church that we are, that, that, that we are left in a place to simply trust. So, for example, as we get to the end and we begin to talk about God bringing the, the, the world as we know it to an end and making all things new, there is so much conjecture and so much drawn and so many conclusions made that now we have massive, a multiple number of views of, of how the end's going to come. So we're going to deal with this at, at that time. So there's a millennial perspective. There's a perspective of the rapture, post-trib, pre-trib, uh, uh, mid-trib, and then there's... Uh, uh, Post-millennial, all-millennial, pre-millennial, a historic classic perspective, and a dispensational perspective. And then there's, there's everything that's happened in history or everything's future. Right? There's so many views. There's so much conjecture, so much discussion. Some people running to the place that they divide over these things. 
that we're left at the place of just recognizing to tr- that, that, that we are not called to know everything, but yet to know the God who knows everything. In, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then and we get past that verse, and there's so much conjecture and discussion about what happens next. Is verse 1 connected immediately to verse 2, or is there a, a time gap that we don't understand, that, that we can't fathom, and we can't actually even prove textually, but must exist because God created, and then it says that there's emptiness and, 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 and uh, void. It, it, it's formless and without void. Well, wait a minute. God doesn't, he doesn't create confusion or chaos. Can it be possible? There must be this massive time gap, and something must have happened between verses 1 and 2. And there are sound theologians that have presented this gap theory to the church for, for, for a long time. Is, is, is verse 1 off by itself and, and, and a, a, a survey of all that's going to happen in the next 31-ish verses when it, when it walks through the six days of creation? Or is it connected to chapter, chapter 1, verse 2? See, there's all these questions and all these people making these conclusions when really God tells us just enough to know to enable us, to strengthen us, to trust the one who does know. You see, because there's one person who has no mystery as it, as it lends itself to the beginning or the end or the middle. You know who that is? The God who created, who is the Alpha, and the God who creates again, the new creation, the Omega. The God who's God of all times and seasons and places. And don't misunderstand me. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't strive to understand, that we shouldn't seek out truth, that we shouldn't strive to to see what the Bible says and understand the text and understand what what, what it's going for. I've become more convinced through this season of study, I have become more convinced that that God gave us these things and these, these truths not so that we could live apart from him, but so that it would draw us into trusting him more fully. I like to know. I mean, I want to know how things are going to close up. Is, is Jesus going to come back and, and at that first coming, everybody be caught up and that's the end? Or is he going to come back in, in some way and rapture the church and then this tribulation enter? I, I want to know those things. I don't want to miss out. But what am I trusting in when I, when I trust in those things? The things I know. Where am I left to trust and believe when the mystery is still there? I'm left to trust in the God who knows. I, I can't, I, I, I can tell you that I lean six day creationist, a young earth perspective. I, I can tell you I hold that view and I, 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 I think it's the, I think it's the, 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 the soundest, strongest view. But that sets me at odds with godly, sound, doctrinal teachers across history. So I'd like to know. I'd like to have that piece of information. I'd like to be certain about about how it happened and the processes that took place. And and, and is the strata the result of a worldwide flood? Or the reality that the earth has existed for a million years and that the the, the days weren't literal 24 hours and... Instead, they were, they were spans of time. I'd love to know that. But what would I be trusting in if I knew that? 
So I'd be trusting less in the God who was than the information that I have. But I'm left, you're left, we're left to believe that God is, to trust, to live by faith in the God who is, who was, and who is to come. The God who is the sole source of all that exists in heaven and on earth, who created by his powerful word and according to his sovereign plan. This is where we're left. We're going to strive to understand. We're strive to look at it. But, but brothers and sisters, please hear me as we work through this series. It will not be to answer every one of your questions to the, to the, to the satisfaction of every curiosity. We are going to walk through these things to draw us each to a place where we recognize God is God and we are not. Where God has it even when we don't. Right? That's right. Praise God for that. Because the reality is we live like every other human being that has lived. Every other human being that has ever lived has lived in the time between God creating and God making all things new. And at every stage of history, before the fall, Adam and Eve were expected to trust God that, hey, I got you. You don't need that fruit. And every stage after the fall, We're called to trust in this God who has always been, will always be, and is right now. You want to know how to live in the world that is his? Know him and trust him. We're we're going to get that lesson over and over and over again. And you might think, oh, that sounds kind of boring, but we need it over and over and over again. We'll need it tomorrow morning when we go to work. We'll need it tomorrow evening when we get the phone call that something went wrong. We'll need it at the, at the, the following week when, when, when something in the news media pops and all of a sudden chaos ensues. What are we trusting in? Brother and sister, I long for you to trust in the God who is the God who is the sole source of all that exists in heaven on earth, who created everything by his power by his powerful word and according to his sovereign plan. Now, now to this point, just, just as, so, so that you can know it, that, that this isn't the only origin story out there that's been offered up in history. Moses is likely the one who wrote Genesis. He likely wrote all of the Pentateuch except for the first five books of the Bible, except for certain portions of it. He's the one who wrote it, and when he wrote it, he's writing it to a bunch of people who had been enslaved in Egypt. This wasn't the first telling of origins that they had likely ever heard. They were enslaved by a people who had an origin story themselves. Uh, 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 the, the God named Atum is, is in the midst of swirling chaos. And, and I don't know what happens in this, this God Atum that, that he decides that, uh, you know, I don't like all the swirling chaos. And so he brings it to order. But the threat is always that we're moving back to chaos. That he's not able to control it and it's moving back to chaos. The ancient Babylonians, another people who gave gave the, the Israelites a hard time. That they, they have a God. In fact, their view of the creation uh, is often placed against the Genesis account. And people say, oh, Genesis just copied from the Babylonians, the ancient Babylonians. And, and if you understand the differences of the two stories, you understand that's no way that that's possible because they, they believe that they had two gods that existed and they got in a fight and went to war against one another. And the God, um, I want to say Marmaduke, but that's a dog from the cartoon. <laughs> that's not his name. <laughs> 
I think I wrote it down. Marduk, sorry. Marduk defeated Tiamat and, and, and cut Tiamat in two and, and, and made, made, half, made the heavens out of one half and the earth out of another half. And so what we're living on is a dead God, right? Like that's the view. That's not at all the view of the Christian Bible. That's not at all the view of the Jewish people. That's not at all the view of, of the Bible. But that was the idea. In more modern times, we're a little bit more sophisticated now, right? Because now we have science and we can, we can measure things and we can observe things. But even science is left at a place where they're not able to observe the beginning. So they're making all this conjecture and reaching back in time and determining, oh, well, well wait, we understand there was a beginning because we can look out at the world and see that it's spreading out and look out at, at the universe and see that everything's spreading out from a central point. And, well, there must have been a beginning. What happened? Well, there's this massive explosion, this singularity event that all these things, all energy and, and light were woven into this tiny little space and then all of a sudden this massive explosion and it just spread out. And over time, these things start to cool down. These things that took up a little bit of space now spread out to the point we can't even see the end of them. They're after that because they'd rather believe in something as crazy sounding as that than the God who is, who was, and who is to come. It, it, it's the Big Bang Theory and, and evolutionary uh, uh, Darwinian evolution is the, is the pre premier thought of the day of the world around us. To the point that you go in, I saw this happen, I couldn't believe it ha was happening. I was, I was just so shocked that it was occurring. But, but we went to, uh, Amy and I and the boys, when they were a little bit, little bit younger and actually enjoyed spending time with us, we went to, no, I'm just kidding, I think they still like spending time with us, <clears throat> I think. Uh, anyway, they, we, we went to the, the museum up in Chicago. Can't even remember the name of it, but there was this big dinosaur exhibit. And, uh, uh, yes, somebody said it, Field, Field Museum. Big dinosaur exhibit, had a Tyrannosaurus Rex out in the middle. Beautiful, it's a pretty cool thing, right? So you walk in and you're like, wow, that's crazy. Then you find out that about, uh, there's a certain percentage of the bones that aren't real that they've been built because, you know, they've got to put something there. Other, nobody wants to look at half a skeleton, right? We want to put a whole skeleton up there. Well, then you walk into the exhibit that they have set up, and it's winding through these halls that are winding through, and everything is everything is painting and, and paragraphs of words. And, and I enjoy reading, but, man, I'm at a museum. I, I just want, let me just look at something. Don't make me read a book while I'm here, too, you know. So, so what was astonishing was that there was crowds of people gathered around all these artist renderings, like paintings and, 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 and uh, animated uh, uh, pictures and uh, uh, video and, and paragraphs explaining how, how the first life form crawled up out of the primordial goo and, and went from being a tadpole to a frog. I don't remember exactly what it was, but, but people, I mean, massive multitudes of people gathered in these maze of hallways looking at this stuff, talking about this as if it is settled Fact, not considering the theory of it, not considering that there's a lot of faith required to believe it. But look, this is what happened. This is where we came from. Isn't it amazing that we used to be this? And you finally walk, 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 weave your way through all of this stuff about the origin, about evolution to this room filled with dinosaur bones. And they're honest enough to tell you that not all the bones were real, but these skeletons, but... But nobody's standing around and talking about what's really in front of us. They're all standing back in this place talking about where we came from that requires as much faith, I think more faith, 
In recent years, we've, we've come up with intelligent design, and I, I, I think, as I remember it and understand it, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, but this is a Christian attempt to meet the world, to try to describe, look at the world around you. It must, there must be a designer. If there's a watch, there's a watchmaker, right? You don't accidentally stumble on a car in the middle of the desert and assume that the winds and the sand blowing in the winds crafted the rubber tires and the engine that runs and requires gasoline to burn. Nobody assumes that. There must be a designer, and I, 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 there's so much strength to the argument, but there's a weakness to the argument as well because there's a reality. When you start at the world and begin to look for intelligent design, it doesn't immediately push you back to God. And so what ends up happening and what has happened in time is that there's now a growing number of people who look at intelligent design and they say, yeah, I can stomach intelligent design. But that doesn't mean there's a God. It just means that some alien race came here and seeded the, the, the planet. So you can even go out, evolutionary biologist being interviewed, uh, his name is, uh, I've, got, I've got it here, um, Richard Dawkins, being interviewed by Ben Stein, talking, and Ben Stein says, well, what about, it demands a designer. Look at the complexities of humanity, the complexities of the creation, it demands a designer. He's like, yeah, I, I can stomach that, but it's not, it's not God. See, because if, if there is a designer, then that designer had to be a race that evolved. Because the idea here is that we are demanding, the world demands a, 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 a source, a, 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 an origin that's void of God, that denies the reality of God, that has no room for God. It seems that defining a process that, that is the, the story of our origin is more about getting rid of God than, than the plausibility of the process that that actually took place. And every one of them demands some faith. And every one of them begin to shape a worldview that enables or, or hinders a person from living in the world in which we now inhabit. We need to know this God. Our God is the sole source of all that exists in heaven and on earth. He created everything by his powerful word and according to his sovereign plan. And here's what's beautiful about this. The, the Bible doesn't make any, it doesn't make any, um, uh, it doesn't make any, any, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't handle this as conjecture. It just states it as fact. The very first words of the Bible, the very opening of the whole canon, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. No apologetic arguments, no, no positioning, no preparing, no, no demanding that people see something uh, or, or turn from something else, just states it as a fact, as if it's unquestionable, as if it's the right presumption. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created. Elohim is a Hebrew word. It's the word, the, the Hebrew word for God. It's not his proper name. So as we went through the Psalms this summer, I pointed out over and over when you come across Lord with all capitals, L-O-R-D, all caps, that's the proper name of God. It's either Yahweh or Jehovah, depending on your view of he how Hebrew developed in time. But it's, that's the proper name of God. This is the Hebrew way of saying God, the supreme being, the majesty, the, 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 the highest of all, uh, of all gods, Elohim. Now, it's notable, and it should be mentioned, that this is a, a word in plural form, connected to a verb that's in singular form. So, gods, essentially, literally, created in singular form. So, it's almost as the verb should be attached to a singular 
verb. Now, here's what we tend to do, and I want to be cautious here because I do think that as a Christian, we can look back into the Old Testament and we can say, yes, I see the Trinity. I see God, the God that's shown himself and revealed himself in time to the point that we see Jesus as God, the Holy Spirit as God, Father as God, one God. I think we can see that here. I think it's evident here, but I think it's a terrible place for Christians to begin the argument about the Trinity because God didn't write this to, to, to convince us of the Trinity. God had this written to convince us of the truth that he solely, alone, is the creator. And I appreciate Calvin's perspective, John Calvin's perspective here, whence talking about the, the reality of the plural, plural word connected to the singular verb, whence the inference is drawn that three persons of the Godhead are here noted, but since as a proof of so great a matter, it appears to me to have little solidity. I will not insist upon the word, but rather caution readers to beware of violent glosses of this kind. They think that they have testimony against the Arians, which the Arians were trying to, trying to deny the, the, the view of the Trinity, against the Arians to, to prove the deity of the Son and the Spirit. But in, in the meantime, they involve themselves in the area of Sibelius. And it's just another heresy around the identity of God. The point he makes is there's better places to point to the Trinity. Right? So, so I'm just saying that so that you understand it, so that you hear it. This is not to say that we can't see the Trinity. We're actually going to read some verses that help us understand that. But God didn't write this verse to give us something to defend his identity by. Other than that he is the creator, the sole source of all things. When we read Genesis 1-1, it's not so that we can identify Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When we read Genesis 1-1, it's so that we can identify the God who created. And that's exactly what it says he did. The word is in the Hebrew bara. It, 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 it's, a, it's a verb that's only used of God. It's assigned to no person anywhere else at any time in, in the Bible. It's only assigned to God. So other words, form, make, things like that, there, there's, God does that and mankind does that. But only God creates. He is the uncaused cause of all things. He is the one who, who when nothing existed, he spoke it into existence. It's only true of God that this could ever be. He is the answer to the question, why is there something and not nothing? God is. He is the sole source. He is the one who created. He's the one who in the beginning did this work so that when we now come and, 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 and speaking from logic and understanding of how this world works can say that, that if we have a tub full of nothing, it doesn't matter if it sits there a billion years or 10 years. If we have a tub full of nothing, if someone doesn't act upon that tub full of nothing, it's always going to be full of what? Nothing. Something has to act. Some work has to be done. And nothing can't work, right? Something has to put someone or something has to happen for something to exist. And God gives us the answer right here in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. He created all that exists. There's nothing that exists in, in, in all of the heavens and all of the earth. This is the consistent testimony of the whole of Scripture to the point that we come to the end. And he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the, the God who is, was, and is to come. That, I'm that God. And, and so we look and we see and we, we follow that line of thinking all the way back through the, through the Bible. And we come to this place at the very beginning. 
And that same idea, so, so I told you, I, there, there's a rhetorical device I talked to you about last week. It's called merism. I'm saying it wrong, right? I found out, I went and looked it up because I said something last week. I went and looked it up. It's merism, M-E-R-I-S-M. So, so the example I gave you last week is that when a person says that they've gone and searched high and low, what does it mean? They searched everywhere. They used the two extremes to show that they searched everywhere in the middle. So when God says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, he's saying, I'm God of the end and the beginning and everything in between. I'm the God who is, was, and is to come. That's what he's saying. And here we see another mirrorism, starting off the Bible, that God created heavens, everything up in the heights of the heavens to the, to, to, to the smallest subatomic particle that, that exists. And, and I'm guessing, we found some pretty small things, but I'm guessing that there's a possibility that there's even smaller things. We just can't see them. He's cre- he created the space in which it all exists. He created the, the, the matter that fills it. It's a consistent testimony of the whole of the scripture. So we see it in the beginning, we see it in the end, we see it in the prophets. The book of Isaiah, there's more uses of the word create assigned to God in the book of Isaiah than any other book in the Bible, even Genesis. Six times it's going to be used in this first couple of chapters. Over 20 times in the book of Isaiah, I think it's from chapter 40 to 65 in the book of Isaiah. There was one commentator I read from that said Isaiah writes of a creation that's pregnant with new creation. Because he's speaking so much of what God created with the purpose of bringing it to a place in which it was all made new. It's the whole perspective of all the scripture. Such that when we come to the New Testament and we begin to see God revealed through Jesus Christ, it can't help but deal with creation. John 1.1, John's writing, his whole gospel account is is to inform and, and reveal that Jesus is God. That he and the Father are one. And he starts out, John 1, verses 1 through 3, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Somehow at the same time with God and being God, as if individuals but also one. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. What was made through him? All things, heaven and earth and everything in between. Eventually, John makes the point, if you read that passage all the way through, John 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We know that he's referring to Jesus. Paul, again, making reference to Jesus and showing his divinity shows us that everything in the created order was created by God. And Jesus is a part of that. Colossians 1, 16, for by him, speaking of Jesus... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things. So he's taking this mirrorism again and showing us that from, the, from one extreme to the other and everything in the middle, all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Now, just as a side note. Since I made a point of the plural word Elohim earlier, I would say this is where we're able to read back into that plural word, the Trinity. But this is where I would be arguing for the Trinity. I wouldn't start in Genesis. I would start right here because it's so plain that Jesus is God. And we saw it last week in Revelation, Revelation 1.8, where, where God speaks and says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Revelation 21, uh, I, I think it's 5 through 8, where, where, where God speaks again and says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And then Revelation 22, verse 
uh, 12 or 13, he says, I am the Alpha and Omega, but this time isn't the Father or generically referring to God. It is Jesus himself. I am coming soon and bringing my recompense with me. I am the Alpha and the Omega, Jesus speaking. That's where I'm going to argue the Trinity from. That's where I'm going to argue the divinity of God from. And here I'm going to see in Genesis chapter 1, I'm going to let it stand for what it's intended to be. God created all things. He is the source of everything in the heavens and the earth. And then Hebrews 11.3, by faith, by faith, this, this, this whole chapter in Hebrews is about the expression of faith. And, and the writer of Hebrews puts us in this place and helps us recognize and frees us to live in this. We don't have to have all the answers to all the questions that everyone can raise. In fact, God doesn't give us them, give, give, give those to us. But by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. God created out of nothing. What did he create out? Everything that we can see. Everything that we can lay our eyes on. God created from nothing. The point of reading these verses is is simply to show us that this has always been the testament and, and testimony of the whole of Scripture. The God we're gathered to worship today is the God who will bring all things to an end and who is the one who set it all in motion. This is our God. He is the sole source of all that exists in this world today. How did he do it? We see that expressed in Hebrews. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. God created by his powerful word. And we're going to see this more fully in the, in the, in the, in the weeks to come as we deal with the, the flow of creation in the six days. And, and, and each day starts off with, and God said. But I want to touch on it today because it's a, it's a perspective that's already pre- presented in the text that we're reading. And, and, and we see it. It's just further evidence that God is the one who created and he created out of nothing. And he brought everything into existence. Nothing existed except for God. Everything Uh, Let me say it like this. God created everything that is not God. Does that make sense? Nothing existed. It was just God. The space in which we would inhabit didn't exist. The the universe didn't exist. There wasn't wasn't a chaotic swirling of stuff that, that was together. God existed in his triune personality, in his tri in, in his triune eternality, the three eternally distinct persons who are one. He existed that way. We see that across the whole whole of the Bible. This God created. And when he did, nothing existed. So he had nothing to work with. He simply spoke and it came to be. Everything that isn't God, God created. We see that. Hebrews 11.3, Psalm 33, 6-9. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. But he, or I'm sorry, he puts the deeps in storehouse. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. God called it all into existence. For everything from the massive amount of space, the, the universe, to the very smallest subatomic particle, everything owes its existence 
to the God who spoke, and it was so. And God created according to his sovereign plan. I want you to look at this. So in verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we know by the testimony, the broader reading of Scripture, and we'll see it in Genesis uh, 3, chapter 1, verse 3 through 31, we'll see him speaking things into existence. But we, we see the unfolding of his plan begin in verse 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. You see, there, there, there's, this, there, there's this beautiful thing that begins to happen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it shows us in summary that God created everything. And then we begin to see that God didn't just make it all appear. It didn't just all happen. I mean, it all did just happen in a very short span of time, but there's still a process by which he is, he is making all of these things. And, 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 so, and so here's how I read Genesis 1, 1 and 2, and I think that this is the, the traditional view, and, and you trace it all the way back through history, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. He created everything, and it is kind of a summary statement of all that's about to happen. But in the very beginning of his creation, he creates it all, Right? He brings all of this stuff, all this matter, time, space into existence. And then we see in chapters, in verses 3 through 31, he begins to form it and add things to it that don't yet exist. And we're going to see him create light. We're going to see him create life. We're going to see him create mankind in the image of God. But in the beginning, he brings it all into existence. And in the process, over the next six days, we begin to see him form it. And fill it. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. It wasn't that this stuff was all existing, and here's God, He comes up to it and says, Hey, I want to do something with it. None of this stuff existed. There was no darkness, there was no deep, there was no waters, there was no formlessness and void, there was nothing. And God creates and brings this stuff into existence so that He can then be the one who brings it all into formation. So that he can fill it with life that will ultimately and eventually glorify him. Here's the reality. We struggle with that. We, we struggle with the reality that God doesn't just make everything perfect right now. How many times have you heard the question, well, wait a minute, if God exists, if God exists, how could all this bad stuff happen? How could there be confusion and chaos? How could there be evil in the world? How could there be the dark? How, how, how could this stuff exist if God is really God? Because God's hovering over the spirit of the deep is the same as God watching over every one of us now. There's a process that he is working out. There's a plan that he is working in such that even, even Job, let's just use Job as an example. Job is, is going about life, fat, dumb, and happy, doesn't think anything of it, just worshiping God, loving life. And there's this heavenly uh, meeting. And Satan happens to be in the company of the angels that day in God's presence. And God, sa God says, God says, hey, have you thought about my servant Job? Oh, Job, he'll never deny you. He'll never reject you because you've been so good to Job. You know what? You can have, you, you, you can have authority over Job's life to this extent. And he keeps everything from him. But his, I, I forget exactly what it was. But Satan goes down. He he brings sufferings. He, he's spared, but his children die. His livestock die. The only thing left to him is his wife. You know, he doesn't even really have his dignity. 
And there's another heavenly council, and, and Satan happens to be there, and, and he says, yeah, but you know, God says, hey, have you thought about my servant Job? And all of that, Job didn't, Job didn't sin. He didn't reject God. And God says, uh, you know, uh, have you considered my servant Job a second time? And Satan says, yeah, but you know what? You, you didn't let me touch Job. God says, anything but his life. You, you can't take his life, but anything else. And so Satan goes down, and he afflicts Job with these boils. And so now, not only is he without everything that he loved in the world, but now his health is so heavily afflicted that, that he is struggling. And then he has these friends. His wife steps out. You know, I can like picture her stepping out the door of the house and saying, just curse God and die. It's not worth it. Give it up. His friends come and say, oh, you must have really done something to deserve this. What did you do to deserve this? And Job's like, I didn't do anything, but why, God? Why? And all the way through the book, we hear him seeking to understand why. God answers him in the middle of it. Where were you? Job 38, 4 through 7. And there's so many other verses I could read, but, but this, this speaks to the point being made. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Hey, is this your plan I'm working out, or is this my plan? Are, are you the one in charge of this, or am I? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Was I supposed to take your advice? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined this measurement? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line upon it? Or on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Brothers and sisters, there is a way in which God has created that he is putting to good use even the confusing and chaotic things of this world. For his glory and for our good and for the advancement of his gospel work. And this is why the 24 elders in Revelations, when, when they're standing around the throne, they come and they say, they, they say to him, Revelation 4.11, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. By your will. In the book of Ephesians, Paul teaches us and shows us and, and, and shows without question that God is God and that everything is at work under his sovereign will and sovereign plan. There's never a time, even this moment, when God brings everything to existence and it's without form and void. There's never a time in which the Spirit isn't hovering over it, ensuring that his sovereign will is going to be carried we get to see that more fully in the days to come as in next week we see God form these things and in the week after that we get to see God fill these things. God is at work carrying out his sovereign plan not just to create but to conform everything to his will. And so why does any of this matter? Why sit through this for 35, 40 minutes? I think we're going on about 45 now. Why, 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 why bother? Because if he isn't God of the beginning, there's no reason, no need to pay attention to the sermon I preached last week that says he's the God of the end. That means that when we read passages of judgment and hope, there is no difference. There is no God who can make either happen. If God isn't this God, then he isn't worthy of worship than, than the writers of Revelation who say that, that honor and power uh, belong to him, the writer of the Psalms that says that the whole world should fear him and be in awe of him, th th those things don't matter. We might as well get up and do something else. Why does any of it matter? Because if God isn't God of both the beginning and the end and everything in between, there is no hope in this world.
Why does any of it matter? Because we need to realize that we can never be him. We will never replace him. We will always be lower than him. We don't have to be God. Think about that for just a second. You don't have to be God. You don't have to be in control of every little circumstance and have every little answer and have everything planned out. You don't have to be in control. You can't be anyway. (laughs) But because he's God, you don't have to be. If he's not, you better figure out how to be. What a weight that is to carry. We are subject to him, naturally accountable to him. That means we can't just go off and live our life any old way we want to because he's God. We're not. And, and now, any time that we are, we are acting out or functioning in a, in, in, in a, against his will or against what he would have us to be or do, living against his design for the world and for us, We're not just at odds with something in ourselves. We're at odds with God himself. We need to be careful about this. That's why the psalmist doesn't just say they should be in awe of him. They should fear him. They should recognize that God is God. That he is the highest power. He is the greatest being. He is the one who brings everything into existence and will make everything new in the end and hold everyone accountable to the reality of his godness. We need to know this. But we also don't have to be afraid of the chaos. From the beginning to the end, the God who brought it into existence and and worked over what is is seemingly chaotic, what is formless and void, it's not evil yet, it's not, not as if sin has already entered, it's not as if this is some evil force that must be, but that chaos became evil in just a few short chapters, one generation. They rebelled against God and they entered into a world of chaos filled with evil. So it's just second generation murder. Brother murdering brother because of jealousy. We don't have to be afraid of this chaos. We don't have to be afraid of the uncertainty that we live in every day. Surrounded by it. The world's screaming about it, clamoring over it, demanding that everybody must think the same way and do the same thing and follow this set of rules. Our hope is the the same hope as the creation. God is with us. Where we see the Spirit hovering over the waters, we have God with us. Where we see God acting in creation all the way through the Bible, we have this hope. It's ours today, and it always will be to the point that we can be certain that when when we face the end, He will be there. The God who's with us now will be with us then. And why does this matter? Why, why does it matter? Because, because this is the God who, he may have finished his work of creation in the cosmos, but a God who's still creating. Such that when David's caught in sin in Psalm 51, when he's asking for the joy of salvation to return, he also says, create in me, create, bara, put in me what doesn't already exist, a clean heart, O oh God. Renew a right spirit within me. Because the God who created in the beginning and the God who will create all things new at the end is making new creations every day. Such that Paul, when he's writing to the the church in Corinth, writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, 
He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We aren't just people reinvented. We aren't just people with a new perspective. We are new from the inside out. We are a new creation. The only reason we can be so certain uh, and filled with hope and confident in the midst of chaos is because our God is both the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. So why does this matter? Because the only way we can figure out how to live in this world that belongs to God and right relationship with Him is knowing and trusting this God. Let's pray.